Ecclesiastes 1, 16 through 18. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to no wisdom and to no madness and folly, and I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. For our New Testament reading and our sermon text this morning, we are reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray, Lord, that your spirit might work in each one of our hearts to apply this truth, to uh, enlighten and illumine our hearts to it. May we be changed. May we be forever more grateful and more in love with our dear Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord, this morning to be attentive to your word and to be doers of your word as well, which is to delight in the great gospel of your, Lord, of your Son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, the question could be asked, what would it look like if Satan completely took over a city and had free reign over it? Can you imagine? What would it be like? Would it be like the little town of Mount House outside of Carson City where prostitution is legal and people can sell their bodies for a few bucks? Would it be like San Francisco where the LGBTQ agenda is fully accepted and embraced and men and women have their bodies mutilated in order to live their truth? Or would it be like Las Vegas where people throw away their money in a highly unlikely chance that they might just possibly strike it rich? Or would it be like Hollywood or Burbank where the self-adulation of fame and would be upon everyone and they could be as self-absorbed as anyone could be? Or would it be like Manhattan, where the richest of the rich live in opulent luxury and the poorest of the poor live in squalor? About 60 years ago, uh, Pastor Donald Gray Barnhouse of the uh, 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia offered his idea of what Satan would do if he had free reign over an urban center. Listen to Barnhouse's idea. Barnhouse speculated that if Satan took over Philadelphia, all the bars would be closed. Pornography would be banished, and pristine streets would be filled with tidy pedestrians who smiled at each other. There would be no swearing. The children would say, yes, sir, and no, ma'am. And the churches? Oh, the churches would be full every single Sunday. But the one thing absent from those churches, Christ is not preached. What do you think of Barnhouse's hypothesis? Perhaps it's not what you expected, and perhaps that is precisely the problem. Think about this. Notorious sin leaves a guilty conscience. And so if everyone is prim and proper and living a surface-level righteous life, there's no need in their minds for Christ. 
Here's one truth about our ancient foe. Satan plays the long game. He's not like us Americans who demand instant gratification. He works slowly. He works methodically. Ever since the beginning of the 1800s and the Second Great Awakening, the so-called Great Awakening, Satan has been slowly pulling Christ out of the churches in America. He's been exchanging faith for faithfulness, piety for pietism. He's been replacing discipleship with altar calls, removing the offense of the gospel and adding respectability. He's been exchanging belief with a mere act of prayer. He's been taking the folly of the gospel and inserted moral example by which to live. Most of all, he has fed the American ego so that we believe that we can save ourselves by our own effort. Oh, my friend, Satan plays a very, very long game. Writing in 1961, theologian A.W. Tozer wrote, quote, The church has surrendered her once lofty concept of God and the gospel and has substituted for it one so low, so ignoble, as to be utterly unworthy of thinking, worshiping men. This she has done not deliberately, but little by little and without her knowledge. This loss has come just when the forces of religion are making dramatic gains and the churches are more prosperous than at any time. Remember, he's writing this in the 60s. But the alarming thing is that our gains are mostly external and our losses wholly internal. And since it is the quality of our religion that is affected by internal conditions, it may be that our supposed gains are truly losses. I believe that we see very clearly now, 60 years later, that the loss was far deeper than even Tozer could have ever imagined. Another theologian, Michael Horton, describes America's religion as a Christless Christianity. (laughs) Let those two words sink in. Christless Christianity. Our culture values the social gospel where the good news is good works for others. Our churches seek the good of unbelievers while neglecting the good of the people within the church. Critical race theory and postmodern philosophy are the foundation for the new relevant churches. For goodness sakes, the man who's called America's pastor, Joel Osteen. A while ago, Joel Osteen said that God is like a spare tire. You don't plan on needing it, but it's sure good to have it if you do. Michael Horton says this about Osteen's message in general. There is no condemnation in his message for failing to fulfill God's righteous law. On the other hand, there is no justification either. Instead of either message, there is an upbeat moralism that is somewhere in the middle. Do your best. Follow the instructions I give you and God will make your life successful. Do your part and God will do his part. Horton continues, The bad news may not be as bad as it used to be, but the good news is just a softer version of the bad news. Do more. But this time it's easy. And if you fail, don't worry about it. God just wants you to do your best. He'll take care of the rest. All of us in this room, I am sure, agree that Joel Osteen does not preach Christ and him crucified. And it's easy to punch down, as it were, with Joel Osteen. But how many have lost their first love? They have majored in minors and forgotten the most central thing. Stop and consider if the gospel of Christ crucified has been displaced in your mind in your day-to-day living? Are you, dear brother, more obsessed with sports or the reality that Jesus died for your sins? 
Are you, dear sister, more focused upon the drama in your friends' lives or that Jesus rose from the dead? Fathers, are you more consumed with your job or Jesus' job or work on your behalf? Mothers, are you more concerned about your husband's bad habits or that God saved you from yours? You see, the gospel is the center of everything that we are as Christians, and the devil rightly claims victory when we push the good news to the side. I pray that, like Paul, we would come to renew our minds and refresh our hearts with the message of the cross. This morning, as we look at our passage, we are going to see two marks of a minister's mission, or, or two ways that we can keep the gospel centered in our lives We can keep Christ and him crucified at the forefront. We're first going to see a humble demeanor and then uh, a humble determination. I got those in reverse. The first one is a humble determination, the cross. We see this in verses 1 and 2. Paul's humble determination, namely the cross. He writes in verse 1, And I, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Paul reminds his brothers and sisters in Christ the exact way that he first came to them. Note how negative Paul is in this first verse. He tells them that he, what he did not do rather than what he did. He'll get to what he did later, but he's starting off saying, Remember, I did not do these things. I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. He tells them that he did not use lofty speech. This term literally means superior words. Paul did not dazzle with demonstrably dynamic diatribes describing the gospel. I almost had it there. He, he did not run through his Greek vocabulary cards in order to find the largest words that he could to impress people. He did not use lofty words. He did not use big words. He did not use highfalutin talk. Rather, Paul used earthy words. Words that the most simple could understand. Moreover, he did not apply wisdom to the message either. He did not try to syncretize the message of the gospel with that of wisdom. He didn't try to synthesize the gospel of Christ and him crucified with stoicism. He did not blend the gospel with Epicureanism or Platonism. He didn't try to find common middle ground on which to build the gospel using the culture of the day. Rather, he proclaimed Christ and him crucified. Paul was a radical departure from what the Corinthians were accustomed to. In the Greek culture of the time, and especially in Corinth, located in Greece itself, the Greek culture of the time, a famous orator would come into the city, he would stand in the middle of the public square, wax eloquent about his particular philosophical persuasion. He would often go out to grand banquets, in order to dazzle the diners with his rhetorical wit. He would make a spectacle of himself so that he would become known and famous within the city. He would refute the philosophers of the city in debate. He would apply every bit of his mind to gaining a following for himself. It was truly the entertainment of the day. The Corinthians were accustomed to this way of growing a following. They were used to actors rolling in and giving them a show. And yet, this is precisely what Paul did not do. Believe it or not, this humility would be used against him. We learn in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 10, that some said of Paul, quote, His letters are weighty and strong, 
but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is of no account. Indeed, he was so pitiful that when he first taught the Galatian church, his weakness or illness or disability was something that they would have remembered years later. And yet, in both places, in Corinth and in Galatia, a strong foothold of the kingdom was established. In Paul's weakness and humility, God grew his church. I cannot help but think how the church in America has cast away from this humility. For the life of me, I cannot see Paul hosting revival meetings or crusades. I can't see him renting out stadiums and pulling people in to see a spectacle. Paul didn't run advertising campaigns to pique people's interests. He didn't run an ad saying he gets us. Paul didn't try to rehab Jesus' image. He simply proclaimed Christ and him crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Greeks. I certainly don't see any of Paul's gospel humility in those who stake their name and reputation on their smooth talking and easy listening. It would seem a general rule of thumb that the more people you have gathered to hear a man preach, the less likely it is that he's actually preaching. Of course, there are exceptions. But generally, when thousands upon thousands gather every week, they are more impressed with the preacher than the message that he gives. This should give us great courage, brothers and sisters, because Paul used weakness and humility to advance the kingdom of God. We do not need to be the most skilled apologists. We do not need to have every answer the unbeliever might have at the ready. We do not need to be great public speakers We do not need to have rhetoric classes. We do not need to articulate well. We just need to proclaim the gospel of Christ and him crucified. And God will do the rest. God used a weak, inarticulate, and totally unimpressive man like Paul to build his church. He can and does use each and every one of us as well. Indeed, the theatrics that we see around us are one of the primary reasons why we live in a Christless Christian culture. Look with me at what Paul did determine to do. Verse 2, he writes, For I decided to know nothing among you except Christ, Jesus Christ, and him crucified. This word that he uses translated as decided refers to the process of deliberating and giving a reasoned judgment. The NIV translated is as, I resolved to know nothing among you. You see, Paul weighed his options. He was no fool. Paul was an incredibly smart and educated man. And when Paul was coming up to the city of Corinth, he determined as he was walking through the streets, as he was looking at the philosophers and and Stoics and, and the different people debating in the squares, he determined that he would know nothing among them except Christ and him crucified. He knew the background of the traveling speakers. He knew that this was a very cosmopolitan and cultured Greek city. And yet, in light of who they were and what they expected, he judged it right and resolved to know nothing among them except Christ and him crucified. The core of Paul's message, the center around which everything else orbited, was the historical fact of Jesus the Christ and the historical reality of, his, of him crucified and resurrected. Paul smo- spoke nothing if it did not relate back to this core. He applied nothing if it was not first related to the work of Christ. He counseled no one if it was not on the basis of Christ and him crucified. 
He prayed in no way except upon the basis of Christ and him crucified. He preached nothing that did not have first and foremost that Christ was crucified and resurrected for us. Paul gives us more information about what he preached to them in, in chapter 15. If you have your Bibles open, turn and with me to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 5, but especially verses 3 through 5. Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 3 through 5. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Very simply, we have here the gospel in three verses, do we not? Jesus died for our sins. Knowing that each one of us has fallen short of the glory of God, there is none righteous, no, not one, none seeks after God. Christ lived a perfect life in order to die upon a cross so that our sins might be punished upon his shoulders and his righteous life might be imputed to us, might be given to us in exchange. Christ died for sinners. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Of course, this has been foretold long ago in the prophets. Indeed, we sung a song a little bit ago about Isaiah's vision of the suffering servant and how he would indeed die for our sins, but he would be a gentle shepherd who would not break the uh, bruised reed or quench the smoking flax. He died for our sins. It was predicted centuries before. What is more, he was buried. This was a real death. This was not a false death. This was a death performed by Roman executioners who were very, very good at their job. He died really and actually. He was clinically dead. So dead that they put him in a tomb. They prepared his body. They wrapped him in linen cloths and they laid him in a tomb. They rolled a stone in front of it. They sealed it and they set guards in front of it. And when they came back two days later to find the body or to care for the body further, it was gone. For he rose from the dead. He was buried and he raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. He rose again from the dead. His resurrection proved that his work upon the cross was sufficient. That his work upon the cross was acceptable. That his work upon the cross was pleasing to his father. And so he rose from the dead as a proof to you and me and all of our brothers and sisters in Christ that Christ has paid it all, and all to him we owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. And what is more, in verse 5, Paul writes that he appeared to Cephas, that is Peter, and then to the twelve. This is a well-testified event. This is not the uh, psychosis and mass uh, psychotic episode of multiple people. They each saw him. And indeed, Paul goes on in, verse, uh, in chapter 15 to describe many, many, many people at many different times seeing the resurrected Christ. This is well testified. Not only do we have the Spirit of God telling us that this is true, but we also have eyewitnesses who recorded their eyewitness testimony to tell us that Jesus did indeed rise from the dead. This is the gospel. Now note what is missing from Paul's proclamation of what is most vitally important to him. Did you see that he says to turn from your sins? No. 
He does not say that you must have a changed life in order to believe all these things. He does not say, now go live a good moral life. He does not say, go out and make the world a better place. He does not say, now be better. The gospel, brothers and sisters, is a proclamation. And this is the fundamental misunderstanding of, in the Christless Christianity of America. We miss the gospel or we blend the gospel with the law. Many think that the gospel is a means to an end. It's good for getting people saved and then we can move on from it. It's the first step in getting us to heaven and now we take it from here, some would say. Others believe that the gospel is a great example of what to do. They make what is a proclamation of what is done into a version of the law commanding you to do something. Amazingly, in my long ago past, uh, one church that we were a part of went to a Christian summer camp that was for high school students. And a student who went to the camp, who turned out to be an unbeliever, uh, at the end of the camp, she asked the camp director, you know, we've been here an entire week and we haven't heard the gospel proclaimed once. Why is that? And the camp director's answer, oh, this is a discipleship camp. We know that you all are saved, so we don't need to, take to proclaim the gospel. This, in a way, is the fundamental problem and deficiency of Christianity in America. We have forgotten that the gospel is what we must be rooted in. The gospel is what we must be grounded in. It's the foundation for everything that we do, everything that we are, everything that we say, everything that we pray and worship. It is grounded and rooted in the gospel reality of Christ and him crucified for us. Brothers and sisters, the gospel is the most important reality that the world has ever known. You needed the gospel to believe. You need the gospel right now to live. And you will need the gospel in the future in every moment. The gospel is never something we grow past. Indeed, if we ever move beyond the gospel, by definition, we are Pharisees. It may be helpful for you to think of it in this way. All of scripture can be lumped into two categories. There's the law and the gospel. The law says do. The gospel says done. If you ever tell someone that they need to do something in order to be made right with God and the gospel is not present in that exhortation, you are leading them into legalism. My friends, the gospel is the greatest news ever. The term itself comes from the Greek word euangelion, where we get the term evangelical. It referred to the heralds who had run ahead of a victorious general returning from battle, who had won the war and settled the peace. The heralds would run ahead And they would proclaim the news of their great leader's work. He would preach peace and he would preach victory to the towns that he would enter into. He would bring joy and cheer to the people of the land who had been at war. Now imagine a herald coming in proclaiming peace, peace, where there is truly peace. And the townsfolk saying, okay, we'll get our spears and shields and battle weapons and we'll go fight. It makes no sense, right? The gospel is a proclamation of peace. In such a scenario, the people would not, were not called upon to take up arms. They were not conscripted to fight back. No, the heralds brought good news that the people were merely to believe and to rejoice in. When we hear the gospel, it is a declaration that Christ has defeated the enemy and has made peace between God and us. When we hear the gospel, we are to be filled with joy and hope and confidence and courage. When we hear the gospel proclaimed that Jesus paid it all, all to him we owe, we should smile and not feel burdened. 
The truth of the gospel is what has changed our relationship with God from our judge to being adopted as sons and daughters. Because we have been adopted, we now follow the law of God, the commands of Scripture, because we love our Father. No longer out of compulsion, but out of desire. No longer out of fear, but out of love. We may rest in this. This was the message that Paul brought to the Corinthians. This was the good news. If you believe it and trust it as your only hope in life and death, you too will discover just how sweet it is to be reconciled with God. Now back to our text. The second part of Paul's gospel ministry was a humble demeanor of thankfulness. Paul now reminds his readers of what he was like when he first came to them. And it wasn't much. He says in verse 3, I I was with you in weakness. Now we're not exactly sure what he's referring to by weakness. It, It may have been that he was physically ill. It may have been that he felt totally inadequate before the erudite Greeks in Corinth. It may have been that he was weak because of his common trade of tent making. Or it may have been his physical presence. His body was small and insignificant. One scholar noted it is the nature of the cross that it cannot be preached elegantly and brilliantly, but only in weakness. I like that one a lot. And it was that the apostle to the Gentiles came to Corinth with a weak message, preached by a weak man. But he continues on in verse 3, I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. Some have claimed that Paul was afraid of the people that he was preaching to. For some reason, I just don't see that in Paul. This was not one who was enslaved by the fear of man. Uh, He confronted Peter for Pete's sake. Others think that he was afraid for his own safety, yet this doesn't quite square with the fact that he saw God deliver him time and time again. I believe here that Paul was in fear and trembled because of the weight of the awe-inspiring glory of the majesty of God. He knew that the message he was bringing was the message of the king. He knew that he was called to be an ambassador of the peacemaking God. He knew that what he spoke were the very words of life to those who would hear. And so we see that Paul was a humble man. He was weak towards towards the people to whom he preached. He was in fear and trembled at the work of God. Beware, my friends, of those who come in the name of Christ with an arrogant entitlement. Untold numbers have turned away from the church because of the arrogant and self-righteous people within her. They are told that they are somehow less than because they do not live such an exemplary life. No, Paul was not the self-righteous arbiter of truth who wielded his Bible with a heavy hand. He was not the one who would argue and browbeat people into church. He was not the one who would coerce and manipulate the lost. Paul was humble before them and trembled before God. And how could we be anything other than that? If we truly understand that Christ was crucified for us, if we understand the weight of the gospel, if we meditate upon the love of God and the sacrifice of Christ, we cannot but be humble. Indeed, whoever looks upon himself cannot be proud, and whoever looks upon Christ cannot help but be humble. The way to grow in humility is the gospel. But Paul goes on. Verse 4, in my speech... And my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but they were in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. It's interesting to realize just how countercultural Paul's ministry was. His message was obviously foolish to the Greeks, 
But also the method by which he gave that message was not what they would have expected. Paul did not use rhetoric or fancy words as already mentioned. One commentator notes, the Corinthians felt that they had the right to judge Paul and his message and were evaluating him by the same criteria by which popular orders and teachers were judged. And Paul's response, good luck with that. Paul's speaking didn't have the standing ovation at the end. In fact, there probably was silences in the room as some thought, this guy's nuts, while others were deeply moved by the message of done in Christ. Why would Paul give up this valuable, persuasive speech? Because we know that he's capable of it. We see him in Athens interacting with the philosophers in in Athens, Greece, no less. And yet here he says, I'm not going to do any of that. Why would he give this up? Simply put, he doesn't need it. Paul says that the Spirit's work itself has demonstrated persuasively and the authenticity of his message. Paul actually gets a little snarky here in the Greek. This word demonstration was actually a technical term used by the Greek philosophers to describe the, the culmination of their argument. And he's saying, I don't need any culminating arguments because the Spirit himself testifies to my words. And he's the only proof that I need. Paul says that his message is true not because of the words used, not because of the order that they were put in, not because of an emotional appeal, but simply because the Holy Spirit himself testifies and convinces you that it is true. And is this not such a sweet savor to us, brothers and sisters? Some of us remember the time when we heard the gospel preached and the Spirit himself applied it to our hearts. Some of us remember an exact moment where we remember the comfort of being brought into relation with God as Father rather than as judge. Others in this room perhaps have an even more blessed experience of never having a conversion experience and have been raised as covenant children within the church and have always trusted that Jesus is the Savior and have always trusted in God's word and his gospel. But even you too have seen and experienced the radical transforming power of the Holy Spirit, perhaps just not in such a short period of time. This could be conviction of sin. This can be comforting in trials. This is the confidence in the midst of struggle. This can be a peace that surpasses all understanding. But regardless, it is the work of God in our hearts that brings us to trust and rely upon the message of Christ and him crucified for us. Now, I want to note well that this is not referring to miracles or tongue speaking, but to the far greater miracle of a transformed life in this Corinthian culture. As we could see if we had time, we could look through the rest of the book uh, to the letter to the Corinthian church, and we can see that these were very, very pagan people who had indeed had a, a conversion when the Spirit uh, testified to them that the gospel that Paul proclaimed was indeed true and that they, by believing, might have forgiveness in Christ. They struggled. They continued to struggle. In fact, it's a, a common thing to, to say that the Corinthian church was one of the craziest churches in, amongst the ones that Paul was shepherd over. And yet they received his words. And he's confident in their salvation because he proclaimed nothing but Christ and him crucified. Verse 5, Paul continues. We have done all this so that your faith 
might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Human wisdom and philosophy can always be superseded by something else. After all, modernism was eclipsed by postmodernism. And I'm looking forward to what postmodernism is going to be eclipsed by. Will it be post-postmodernism? We shall see. Maybe it'll just be modernism again. If you base your life upon the wisdom of man, you are sure to be shaken and fall. But if you are rooted and grounded in the work of Christ for you, then you have built your house upon the rock, and you will not ultimately be moved. And in that we may rejoice, for we are safe in the mighty hand of God. We may rest in Christ and him crucified for us. Now, my first introduction to the good Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones was through a little booklet that I picked up that had his sermon on this passage. And this quote struck me as I was reading it. Listen to the words of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. And we'll conclude with this. My suggestion to you, my friends, is this. That until the church comes back to the same decision, determining to know nothing of them but Christ and him crucified, she is going to avail nothing. And to me, the tragedy of the hour is that the church is doing almost the exact opposite of what is said here by the great apostle. Now, the motives I know are good. People are out to win people, and they are resorting to various messages and means and methods because they think that is what's going to appeal. But it isn't succeeding, is it? And I see no hope until we return to the method and the manner and the message of the great apostle and arrive at this great decision, this great determination of his. This is our mandate. This is what we are here to proclaim. The point of this, brethren, when we forget and do not proclaim Christ and him crucified, the church fails. When we, like the apostle, decide to know nothing among you except Christ Jesus and him crucified, the church grows and the kingdom is advanced. Let us pray.